Well, we've been teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. I've been in this for several months now. And today we're in the second half of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 16 to uh, 33. And this is super relevant because it's, a, it's actually a lesson on suffering and persecution. So you're well aware that there's been many firsts in Canada over the past several months. We have pastors like myself that have been fined for opening their churches and having worship services. And, and that's, a, that's a big deal. But you know what? It's not really that big of a deal. I was sharing with our elders this week, or maybe it was the week before, that once you've been fined a couple times and harassed a little bit, it's, it's actually not that big of a deal. So don't get too rattled by that if they happen to come knocking on your door. But still, from the perspective of cultural integrity and the ministry of the church, it's kind of a big deal. An even bigger deal is that our brother James Coates is in jail this morning in the most conservative province in our country, in Alberta, for opening his church. And we heard from his dear wife that this man who voluntarily turned himself in to the RCMP was subsequently detained and transferred to, transferred to remand with leg and handcuffs on him. Pretty shameful action against a minister of the gospel. Worship, and not just public worship, but many of our ministries have been suspended. So we've, we've been unable to fully minister to so many people in light of the current circumstances. And this is a pretty big deal because we all know, and maybe we need to remind ourselves of this, that there is a very minute chance of dying from this virus, but a 100% chance that you will die spiritually apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned in my prayer, we can get all super spiritual and say, well, oh, God can save people even with closed churches. That's true. God can also heal people with closed hospitals, but who would want to close our hospitals? Because generally speaking, God uses human agents to administer his graces into the world. He uses physicians to help us when we are physically ill. And he uses his church to minister the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not just biotic beings. We're also spiritual beings. And therefore, we need robust Christian ministry so that we can not only come to faith in Jesus Christ, but grow in our faith. But you know, all of these inconveniences and injustices that we're witnessing in Canada actually pale in comparison to some of the things that early Christians experienced. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I think there's a question that's raised here for us. And the question is, how should we respond to persecution and suffering? How do we respond? In fact, this is kind of a reoccurring theme, isn't it, in this book? It's like, hmm. In this book and in Scripture, time and time again, the writers seek to equip God's people for how to respond to persecution and suffering. Why? Because we're not guaranteed an easy path. In fact, we've probably had it too easy for too long, and as such, we're probably more shocked than our forebears would have been for some of the things that are going on in culture today. Now, as we enter into this text and ask some questions about how to respond to suffering and persecution, 
What we need to understand is that when we're reading through Scripture comprehensively, so if we read from the book of Genesis through to Revelation, we're going to receive many, many lessons on Christian witness and ministry. And at times, you may read something here and something over here, and it's like, those, those seem to like contradict. And the tendency is, well, I'm going to go with this one because that suits my personality more. I'm going to go with this one because that suits my personality more. Now, if you think of a giant elastic band, let's say I had an elastic band here and I were to stretch it out. I stretch that band out, but what's actually happening is this hand's pulling this way and this hand's pulling this way. The, the elastic band is under tension. And so while I have my two hands pulling this elastic band apart, they're, they're wanting to, to pull into each other. And when we read the word of God, this might be a helpful, helpful analogy for us to understand that many of the things that were taught in scripture are held in tension. So for example, in Jesus' ministry, one of the things he taught his disciples is I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to go the extra mile. So if a Roman soldier comes along and says, hey, by law, I'm allowed to make you carry my baggage one mile, carry it too. If someone comes up and slaps you on the one cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, the, the principle here is not, well, let people kill you, never go to war. If a burglar comes in your house and starts shooting at you, just turn the other cheek, show them where your money is. That's not the meaning of that text, but the meaning is, as Christians, we need to permit and allow for a certain amount of abuse and offense to be taken, just like our Lord did in his earthly ministry. At the same time, we see that same Lord getting pretty worked up in the temple, flipping tables, intimidating people, yelling, because people were diminishing the sacred space of worship. Sometimes Jesus would push back and speak out and call the Pharisees some rather crude names. And other times, he would just slip through the crowd and disappear. Sometimes he'd say something, sometimes he'd say nothing. Sometimes the Apostle Paul permitted himself to be abused and tortured. Other times, he just allowed someone to take him over a wall in a basket and he ran off into the night. These are all things we hold in tension. And the circumstances often determine how we should respond. But what we need to understand is that there's not just one sort of like passive non-responsive kind of approach to suffering and persecution that's presented to us in scripture. Sometimes we get into the fray. Sometimes we push back. Sometimes we get our sneakers on and we take off into the night. There's a multiplicity of approaches. There's tension in so much of the Christian life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 33, Paul sets aside his pretensions, sort of his, some might call his Mr. Spiritual persona. And he gets very bold and blunt with the Corinthian church. Now, what I mean by this is that Sometimes Christian leaders or even seasoned Christians, because we live our life in community and we kind of pick up on cues from others as to what people think is appropriate or inappropriate, sometimes we, 
rightly or wrongly, allow our view of spirituality to be shaped more by cultural expectations than by the paradigms we see in the word of God. So you know what this is like, right? When you go into church, there's like a certain preconceived notion of how a pastor should act. You know what I'm talking about? So when he speaks, he speaks like this, and he says, hello, beloved. Welcome to church. Today we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he just always smiles, and his wife's up there playing the organ. And his kids are perfectly aligned in the front row. We have all these weird notions about what it means to be spiritual. Or we say to people, you know, you you can't speak in sort of edgy language. You gotta just kind of circle in on people. Keep it light, man. Just kind of, just always be loving and caring. And if someone says something negative, just just walk away. Paul's like, nah, not going to do that. So he speaks, if you don't like sarcasm, you're not going to like the Bible. So he speaks very sarcastically about this church's response to him. And there's several lessons that we learn, but the first one, believe it or not, in response to the question of how do I respond to persecution and suffering is some teaching on how to defend yourself, listen to this, from within the church. Some persecution and suffering will come to you from within the church at the hands of other Christians. So Paul had written a letter previous to the Corinthian church. It was called the painful letter. He really had to tear a few strips off them and a few people took real offense to that. And they started attacking Paul. So here's what Paul says as he defends himself from within the church. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. So by foolish, he means worldly. And he's using this language sarcastically. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. So it's like, oh, I didn't think boasting. I didn't think ever speaking of your strengths was a Christian thing. You ever met people like that? Don't, don't encourage people. That, that'll, that'll go to their head. Don't ever, don't ever let people know that you've actually been useful to Christ. That, that's, that's, that's not humble. Don't let people know that you actually serve robustly in ministry. That, that's, that's bringing glory to yourself. And Paul is sort of challenging that behavior. They had sort of attacked Paul for his style. He says in verse 17, what I am saying with this boastful confidence I say, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. So again, sarcasm. This might not be very Christ-like of me, but let me play the role of a fool for a little bit and talk about myself and some of my accomplishments. Since many boast according to the flesh, tongue-in-cheek, I too will boast. And then this scathing rebuke. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Now just think about what Paul is saying here for a moment. Just track with him. Paul had to defend himself from accusations from within the church that he was a little too harsh, a little too straight up. And um, 
he responds with this very interesting kind of series of sarcastic comments. Basically says, well, let me, let me just kind of lay it all bare for you for a moment. So I, I won't be like Jesus. I mean, you, you're, you're like Jesus because you're so wise. But let me play the role of the fool for a little bit. And, and as he sort of boasts a little bit about himself, playing the role of the fool, not being very Christ-like, not being very pastoral, not fitting into the cultural norms, he then brings to their attention their atrocious behavior. So while they were picking on Paul for being too harsh, what were they doing? They were allowing people to slap them around. Oh, that's super spiritual. Hit us more. Take more advantage of us because that's what spiritual people do. They were permitting false teaching in the church. False teaching, which can destroy people's lives, not only temporally, but eternally. They were allowing people to fake it, putting on airs. Again, the super spiritual Christian. Hey, brother, I got a word for you. The Lord has just spoken to me in my little prayer closet and I'm just super spiritual and I got it all together, so let me pass it on to you. This kind of stuff that is so rampant in the church that you frankly make us like gag a little. So Paul's challenging them by saying, okay, well, I'll play the role of the fool, meaning I'll just act myself, but you guys need to consider the fact that even though you have this hyper-spiritual view of what it means to be a Christian, what you're actually doing is far worse. You know, as a Christian church, by the way, we should not be at all interested in people that put on pretensions or, you know, play the role of the poser. Life is too short to fake your spirituality. And yet at times you'll meet people with sort of a fake veneer kind of spirituality that they want to impose upon you. I've had people say to me, Aaron, you need, you need to be a better example. What do you mean by that? You need to limit your liberties, like tone it down a little bit. Oh, so you can say what you want, but I can't. Or pastors can't use that kind of language. Funny story, several years ago, probably 15 years ago, I had a mom and her little guy come up to me after a service and she's like, my son would like to say something to you, Pastor Aaron. He's like, Pastor Aaron, you use the word stupid in your sermon. That's not a good word. And his mom was sort of like, mm -hmm, Pastor Aaron. I said, well, it's in the Bible. That was the end of that conversation. We have um, people that will say, even in reference to the fight we're fighting right now, well, you should just take it on the chin. We're all going to heaven. Like, just don't worry about it. Just take it on the chin. We're all going to heaven. Thank God our Christian forebears didn't do that. Thank God the, the Protestants fought back against abuse. Thank God that past generations of Christians fought against slavery. Thank God that previous generations of Christians fought for free speech, for freedom of movement, for the ability to work. Thank God they fought for the desire to be governed, not ruled. Thank God they fought for those things. Sometimes we forget the blessings that have been given to us by previous generations of Christians, some of whom literally spilt their blood for what we have. I would say shame on us if we're willing to just throw that away and spit on their graves. 
These are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about when it comes to authentic Christian living. What did the church accuse Paul of? You're not loving Paul. Maybe you're a little bit nitpicky. You're a little bit harsh. Paul's like, okay, but you give a pass to false teachers. What's worse? You give a pass to false teachers. You allow people to put on airs. You allow people to enslave you to the old ways. Like, let's get our priorities straight here. I think he makes the point pretty strong and pretty clearly. So if you're faithful in the Christian life as Paul was, I suppose what you should expect is that at times there's going to be well-meaning Christians, maybe a little ignorant or naive, that are going to be harder on you than they would be on false teaching. As I've watched some of the public comments online, uh, even Christian people and pastors commenting on James Coates' arrest and confinement, I'm thinking to myself, you know, they're picking on this guy. Oh, he's just playing the role of the martyr. Uh, he should have you know, locked his church down. He should have followed the rules. The same people that don't speak out against infanticide, Bill C-6, Bill C-7, are all of a sudden all up in arms about the decisions of some pastor out west. It sort of shows the motive, right? Probably motivated more by a desire to self-protect and posture their own decisions into the public sphere than to actually stand for justice. I'm just calling it out as it is. I hope you don't mind. Paul's response is, well, I know it sounds boastful, but guess what? I'm right and you're wrong. And then he says, if I have a flaw, tongue in cheek, it's that I'm far less tolerant of false teaching than you are. So it's kind of a, again, sarcasm, right? If I have a flaw, it's that I'm far less tolerant of false teaching than you are. So as we consider these words, I suppose we could ask ourselves questions like, do we tolerate false teaching? Do we interpret love as passivity to wrongdoing? Are we studied enough in scripture to recognize falsehood and to speak out against it? So that's the first lesson. The second lesson when it comes to persecution and suffering is to let your reputation go before you. So everyone here has a reputation. If you've been a Christian for a long time, obviously you have a longer reputation. Some of, your, some of the things people think about you might not be true. You got to bring clarity at times to false notions of false lies or, or, or lies or false notions that might be floating around in culture about you. So the, the best one I can think of, which I, I actually laughed when I heard this, is there was somebody many years ago that actually was spreading a rumor that I was a closet Muslim <laughs> posing as a Christian because I'd done some ministry with some Muslims at the, at the mosque. Like, this guy's a Muslim. He's just pretending to be a Christian. Now, those kinds of accusations are so outlandish, like nobody believes them. But nevertheless, when you're in public ministry like I am for year, year after year, decade after decade, there's, there's rumors out there that aren't true. And then there's thoughts out there about me that are true. But each of us has a reputation. It might be more public, less public. We all have a reputation. So Paul, instead of saying, well, I'm not going to talk about myself because that's not what Christians do. I'm not going to let you know about what I've actually done for Christ because that's not what Christians do. I'm never going to 
brag or boast about the people that have led to Christ because that's not what Christians do. Paul just does that. So let your reputation go before you. Here's what he says. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. Again, some sarcasm. This is, this is a world, Jesus wouldn't do this, right? But I'm gonna do it. I'm speaking as a fool. He's playing their game. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. These are all the things that early Jewish converts won't like to boast about. Their lineage, their, their stature. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Did you see that? I'm a better one. Oh, I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. And then he just kind of lets it rip. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was set adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, because by the way, if you read the book of Acts, there are other things that he doesn't mention here. There is the daily pressure on me, this is his pastor's heart, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? It's like, well, this is a sin in the Bible. Paul is talking about his accomplishment. Shame on Paul. You're not supposed to do that. But Paul does it. He rattles off his credentials. Not that they mattered to him, but to make a point. To remind his errant listeners that he was the real deal. And he, in order to demonstrate that to them, not to brag, he reminds them of the facts of history. He's not going to rewrite history. This is what happened. Now, Paul, Paul didn't go through these things so that he could walk around and say, hey, guess what I did this week? I got beaten up for Jesus. Can I get a round of applause? This would be ridiculous. It's like people said, oh, Aaron wants to get fined so he can make money off of it. Yeah, what a, what a genius financial plan. Totally genius, economically brilliant. So Paul didn't do these things so that he would benefit. So he's able to rattle them off because he did them to the glory of God. And he reminds the people that he had been through these things to the glory of God. And he doesn't even list them all. So Paul proves his authenticity by enduring suffering. And in addition to all of that, he reminds them of the weight that he bore for the health of the churches that he had planted. Now, this is his reputation. This is his life. This is his story. And many generations of Christians have been inspired by the sufferings of Paul. Many sermons have been preached on the sufferings of Paul. 
And it was his suffering that proved that he was the real deal. Paul never asked to be worshiped. He never asked for material benefit for an award because of his suffering. But when the Corinthian church heard this, I think they probably did a little bit of a double take. We're like, eh, I guess he's right. Here we are picking on Paul because he came on a little too strong in his last letter. But clearly the man has a heart for God and a heart for the church. Do you? Do you have a heart for God and a heart for the church? If you do, you'll increasingly build a bulletproof reputation. People might throw stones at you and ridicule you of things, but people know you're the real deal. It's also true that in our humanness, when we suffer, that at times we really take it personally, don't we? We have those sleepless nights. We are bothered by people's insults. But one of the, there's a couple things I think that are helpful from this text that recalling past sufferings that we've endured for Christ actually equips us for future sufferings. So the longer you follow Christ, you can look back at times when various things happened in your life. It might've been you had a major health crisis or a relational breakdown, or you were falsely accused of something or dismissed at work unjustly. And, and they hurt and they, they kept you awake at night and they, they caused you great pain, but God sanctified you through that. And when God sanctifies us through episode after episode of suffering, while we don't necessarily appreciate the current suffering we're in, it does equip us for greater things. And I am 100% convinced that God is sanctifying his church right now in a big way. Unfortunately, very saddened by this, it would seem to me that many who claim the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord aren't treating him as their Lord. And there might be a winnowing, wheat from chaff, separation of sheep from goats. But nevertheless, God is renovating his church. And I want to be part of that. And to renovate, you got to tear some things down. There's a, there's a lot of dust in the air. There's a lot of hammering and drilling and smashing apart of things. That's necessary for God to renovate his church. And I think he is renovating his church. Secondly, the more you suffer and endure, the more you're ensured that you're motivated by a passion to see the church of Jesus Christ strengthened. Paul had a heart for the churches, ultimately for the glory of God, of course, but for the churches. And so he endured much for their benefit. And we should too be willing to endure much, not just for our own sanctification, but for the blessing of God's people. I think these lessons are relevant in our days. We haven't quite got to the point of being beaten or starved, but we're under threat. And I don't think it's gonna get better anytime soon. So the Lord proves our authenticity through suffering and he also enlarges our hearts for the church. And then he uses our reputation and our past to minister in the present and into the future. Third lesson is this, and I think this is a pretty significant one because it's rarely discussed. I don't think I was taught this growing up. And that is do not make it easy for people to attack you. Don't make it easy for people to attack you. Again, we think of our Lord. He slipped away after a 
rousing sermon when his adversaries were looking to take him out. Slip away. The time came when he presented himself to them. But oftentimes he slipped away. Paul went through all of this. But in Acts 9, when he's being hunted down, he's lowered over the wall in a basket and he escapes into the night. Don't make it easy for people to attack you. So here, Paul actually refers back to that Acts 9 incident in verse 30 through 33. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, some have suggested that Paul actually is referring to a past regret. In verse 30, when he talks about my weakness, he's saying, I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't just stick around and get arrested. Some interpret this passage that way. You know, I normally, I take take the beating, go down with the ship. This time I took the easy way out and I'm ashamed of it. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here at all. Again, because sometimes our Lord did the same thing. He slipped through the crowd. But rather, I believe what he's teaching us here is don't make the job of evildoers easy. Weigh the consequences. Consider the timing. Guard your location. When Paul here speaks of his weakness, he's speaking of his susceptibility to arrest. In Acts 9, it talks about the Jewish leaders. They were watching every gate in the city. You know, it's like early surveillance technology. And it says day and night, watching, watching. What they didn't think about is there was windows in the wall and he was let down in a basket and escaped into the night. This, I believe, is the weakness. We're all susceptible to arrest, to persecution, to death, to being targeted, to being imprisoned, and so forth and so on. You don't need to make it easy on unbelievers to take our buildings, take our families, fine us, imprison us, enforce draconian laws on us. So without backing down a bit, Paul continues to preach the truth. But he doesn't always like throw himself in front of the authorities. Here I am. Arrest me yet again. There's wisdom and discretion then that needs to be exercised in all of this. Without backing down one bit, I think moving forward, uh, the modern church, the Canadian church, and perhaps the American church too and others needs to probably think a little differently about some of our behaviors and our decisions because I don't think, as I've mentioned several times, things are necessarily going to get better, at least not permanently better. So here are some things for us to consider just by way of practical application to this point. Number one, we as Christians should leverage the law for our benefit. We should fight injustice using the law of the land insofar as it is based on justice. We should know our charter. We should know what the Bill of Rights is all about. We should understand Section 176 of the Criminal Code. We should understand these things as best as we can and speak into the public sphere 
the public realm, about the law. We should remind people that the church is an embassy, that this is sovereign soil. We're not taxed because we're not under the authority of. Taxation is an act of declaring authority over a citizen. The church isn't taxed, not because the government, government's benevolent. It's given us a great gift. It's because our forebears understood there's a separation of church and state. The state's responsibility is in the area of public justice, punishing the criminal and the evildoer. That's about it. The state is responsible for what? Worship, witness, evangelism. Unfortunately, over time, we've sort of given a lot of our responsibilities away to the state. So now they think they're responsible for everything, for schooling our kids, for our health care, as I mentioned before, for putting dog tags on our dogs, and on and on and on. There's, there's been an endless number of responsibilities handed over to the state that first century Christians would have thought would be just absolutely unthinkable. So let's leverage the law for our benefit. Secondly, let's advocate for our rights, the rights that our forebears died for, religious freedom. And we advocate for that as a church. Other religions also by default benefit from that in our country. Free speech, free movement, the, the ability to work in accordance with the six days of creation. Six days you work, the seventh you rest. Now we live in an environment where, no, you can't go to work. You got to close your business. This is contrary to God's creational patterns. We should push back against that. The time has come for us to develop underground networks of believers who can minister to one another and worship together when times are tough and when times are good. So we can prepare ourselves to continue on in Christian ministry, regardless of the circumstances. We should fight for the institutional church. If you listen to my podcast this past week, I spoke extensively about this. And, you know, we know that a lot of believers will say, you know, you'll hear people say this all the time, actually. I'm not into the church. I'm into the house church. This, this, again, by the way, is this super spirituality that often leaks in. We're into house churches. Oh, why into house churches? Because that's how the early Christians did it. Oh, okay. Why'd the early Christians do that? Well, that must have been what God had in mind. Oh, no. It's because they were run out of the synagogue, run out of the public square, sewn up in animal skins and thrown to the lions. It's because they had to. As soon as Christianity became legal in the fourth century, they started building buildings like there's no other moral. Because the church wants to, in an ideal circumstance, have a public witness. We want to have addresses. We want to have the church institute manifesting itself in culture, being a faithful witness for Christ. People can come that don't know Jesus and sit anonymously in the back row and just watch and observe and, and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of unbelievers that are just like, I'm just going to go to your house and awkwardly sit in your basement with 10 other people that I don't know who want me to share my story and spill out my guts. Some will, but there's also a place for the church institute in our culture and in our world. Now there's also a place for the house church. So we have both in our church. They're called small groups. We have flock meetings, and we also have the church manifesting itself corporately in a place like this on a Sunday. If they force us out, so be it. I guess that's our only other option. But in the meanwhile, we want to fight for the church institute, the right of the church to meet for worship, to bury our dead, to marry our young couples, 
to mourn with one another, to teach one another, to discipline one another, to celebrate the sacraments together. These are blessings that we're not going to relinquish without a fight. We also need to be careful of the rise of surveillance technology. We're so tethered to our phones. I use it like all the time. I get these little reports at the end of the week. Oh, your use of your phone went up. Your use of your phone went down. We use it all the time. But in some respects, we've already tethered ourselves to the beast. Because this technology, which was otherwise benign, is now being leveraged by evildoers to surveil you. You go to court, I'm going to summons, I'm going to, I'm going to subpoena your text messages. Like what happened to privacy? So we need to be very careful as Christians. that We don't tether ourselves so tightly to modern technology that we can literally no longer function as a church. I've told some of our younger staff this, it makes me sound like super dinosaurish, but when I went to Bible college, I didn't even have a computer. Let me hear the gasp. I didn't have a computer. I had a typewriter. And my first computer, I think, was, is it 286? Does that sound familiar? I think it was a two. No, it was a two. So it was one before that. I just couldn't remember if it was a 256 or what it was. So two, it was after the 64. It wasn't the Commodore 64. We were too poor for that. But we got the, the 286, and it was like a brown or I think it was a, a gray screen with black font. It wasn't even backlit. And somehow we actually learned about Jesus without a computer. And somehow we actually wrote papers. I remember when we got our first modem, 14.4 modem. We lived on Campbell Ave on the corner of our desk. The little lights flashing back and forth. And like you go to load up a web page and you're like, like longer than one of my sermons. Try to get the page up. But now it's like, I don't have Wi-Fi. I don't have like high-speed fiber internet. My whole life's going to fall apart. The church is going to close. We have to be very careful to tether ourselves so tightly to technology that we can't survive. Here's another thing, very practically. I've talked with several other pastors about this. We need to start picking our real estate more strategically. You know, if we're going to be meeting in undisclosed locations, we have to consider, let's start buying up the rural properties. This spring, your first gardening initiative should be to go and buy as many six-foot cedar trees as you can and plant them all around your property. You need to be thinking about where we live. Sometimes, like, I want to have people over, but I can't because everyone's watching me. I'm trying to minister to people, and I can't because everyone's watching me. We need to be careful how we communicate and by what means. We can't assume that everybody needs to know everything. You know, Sunday afternoon, your grandma calls. Hey, how was church today? Hey, how many people were there? How close were they seated? How many were wearing masks? Anybody try to shake your hand? And you know, this is granny. She loves me. But granny has friends who have friends who don't like you. And so we need to be a little bit more careful about how we communicate. Sometimes we slip away from situations in which we might be abused or attacked. Now, we can't perfectly insulate ourselves from persecution and affliction. But let's not be so foolish to have this notion, oh, if they come for it, we're just going to give it away. 
Eh, have our church. Have our people. Just, let's just let the flock scatter. Jesus will minister to everybody. Let's just give up our freedoms. I think Jesus would have done that. The church needs to fight for their right under God to do the work of the ministry so that God might be glorified and people might be saved. So may God give us the strength and the boldness and the wisdom to be able to do all of that. And may we learn the lessons necessary to be more effective tomorrow than we have been today.